as you're doing these other therapies, you have to also think of what next. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete's Grip Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric ICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete's Grit Podcast? Absolutely. Pete's Grit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We work with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email at pedescriptpodcast at gmail.com. We're hoping to add to the online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, please reach out. We would love to hear from you. So Zach, who are we talking with today? We're excited to have Dr. Nisha Agasti on the podcast today. Nisha is an intensivist at Wesley Children's Hospital in Wichita, Kansas, after doing her critical care fellowship in Wilmington, Delaware. She's interested in QI and MedEd, and we're excited to speak with her today. Yes, this is part one of a two-part series on asthma basics. Today, we're going to talk about everything we use for treatment that isn't respiratory support, including our choice of steroids, other medications, and who is at high risk for decompensation. That's right. Thanks for listening. Let's get right to the content. All right, Dr. Agassia, thank you so much for joining us today. Where are you coming from? Well, thanks for having me, Zach and Alice. I am currently a pediatric intensivist at Wesley Children's Hospital in Wichita, Kansas. I'm also a clinical assistant professor at Kansas University School of Medicine. Thank you both for having me today. Let's jump right into our topic for the day, the management of severe asthma. Will you remind us why is this such an important topic? Yes. um, So acute severe asthma or status asthmaticus is an asthma flare that is not responsive to beta agonist therapy and that gets children admitted to the hospital. As of 2017, about 8% of children have carried the diagnosis of asthma under the age of 18. Highest prevalence is typically between the ages of 12 to 14 years. Um, And there is some uh, racial disparity with black children being more affected than Caucasian and Hispanic children. Near-fatal asthma is a condition where children require tracheal intubation and initiation of invasive mechanical ventilation. The incidence, however, for this is anywhere between 5 and 12%, depending on the source. So that's why the data on this is really not clear, and we can know more about this. Oh, definitely. A vague and terrifying incidence, for sure. Now, when we're evaluating a patient with severe asthma, what risk factors do we need to keep at the top of our mind? That's a very good question. So through the years, through research, we've found out that children do have some specific risk factors that can predict the severity of asthma. We can top, kind of divide them up into medical factors, Mm -hmm. psychosocial factors, and ethnic factors. Medical factors include children who've been previously admitted to the intensive care unit are more likely to have severe asthma, those who are presented with respiratory failure and mechanical ventilation, Seizures or syncope as the initial presentation is one of those things that can give you an idea that this child will be sicker. Also, if a blood gas is obtained, those with a arterial PCO2 of more than 45, so basically showing respiratory acidosis is important. Also, children with a history of high consumption of beta agonist inhalers, so approximately more than two canisters per month, are on the sicker end of the spectrum. And also those with underuse of corticosteroid maintenance therapy. When you think of psychosocial factors, typically denial or failure to perceive the severity of illness, 
if there's associated depression or other psychiatric disorders, these children tend to neglect their underlying disease. And also inner city residents are more prone to severe illness. And lastly, to talk about ethnic factors, as I previously mentioned, black and Hispanic children um, are more prone to severe disease compared to Caucasians. Thanks, Nisha. This is so interesting. There's, you know, asthma as a disease is much bigger than the one patient. It there's so much societal factors, but just just review some of those important points. So high PaCO2 is a risk factor. We'll get into more of that later. High consumption of beta agonists, or maybe even underuse of corticosteroids, all kind of suggesting a baseline sub management of the of the underlying asthma. And then, of course, the psychosocial factors that you already mentioned. Now that we've discussed some of the risk factors and the epidemiology, let's jump into a case. So I'll start with a history. So you're called to a rapid response on the regular inpatient pediatric unit. Your patient is a three-year-old male with a history of mild persistent asthma admitted a few hours ago from the emergency department for an asthma exacerbation. In the ED, he received three nebulized epitropium and albuterol combination treatments, oral prednisone, and was admitted to the regular inpatient unit. Since admission, he's been receiving continuous albuterol at 15 milligrams per hour with worsening tachypnea and new onset hypoxia requiring FiO2 requirement up to 60% via face mask. Oh, wow. And then for current vital signs, we've got a heart rate of 170, a respiratory rate of 54, a blood pressure of 90 over 32 uh, measured non-invasively, satting 88% on the continuous albuterol on 60% FiO2 and a temp of 100.7. This is a 20 kilo kid. So what are your thoughts when you kind of hear this history? What do you want to focus in on? So the first and most important thing is the exam of the child. It's important to see if this is a tired-appearing child in bed, look at their hydration status, are their mucous membranes moist, given that this child has been tachycardic due to medication therapy that's ongoing. It's also important to third get their mental status. Are they alert and interactive? Are they able to focus on you? Or are they so tired that they can't really focus on what's happening around them? So you've you've gone ahead and covered many of the many of the key things we need to look for on an exam. So let me let me tell you about our patient's exam. So he's tired appearing in the bed, his mucous membranes are moist. He has a sinus tachycardia with intermittent premature ventricular contractions noted on the monitor. There's no cardiac murmur. Looking at him, he's tachypnic with increased worker breathing. He's using accessory muscles in the subcostal, intercostal region. He's also flaring with every breath. You put the stethoscope on his chest, you hear diminished aeration in all lung fields, and faint end expiratory wheezing is heard intermittently in the upper lung fields. Pulses are one plus, they're only faint, and then capillary refill time is four seconds. From a neurologic point of view, he's sleepy, but his eyes open when you examine him. So what else does this tell you when you when you hear this physical exam? This kind of gives me information that this child is sick. He is been sick for a while and the ongoing therapies are, are probably not effective enough to cause a clinical change in the patient. So I, I would worry about this child and worry in the back of my mind that this child could decompensate. A couple of things based on uh, what you mentioned about his uh, cardiovascular status. So sinus tachycardia is very common in these patients. One is because of the beta agonist therapy. These children typically come in dehydrated because they've been Mm -hmm. sick with poor oral intake and also insensible losses from just working hard to breathe and being tachypnic for hours can all lead to sinus tachycardia. 
Another important clue that you mentioned was looking at the cardiac telemetry. You mentioned premature ventricular contractions. These are typically benign and don't require any intervention as long as electrolytes are well managed. But another important clue on telemetry to look for is actually a phenomenon called pulses paradoxes. We've heard about this with other cardiac phenomenon. And just to remind everybody that it's a drop in the systolic blood pressure more than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. So a severe asthma is one of those pulmonary indications where you can see pulses paradoxes. There are a couple of theories because of cardiopulmonary interactions that can cause this. I'm just going to briefly talk about them. Oh, yeah. First thing is that there's increased left ventricular afterload from increased negative intrathoracic pressure in severe asthma. This eventually leads to a decreased stroke volume. The second phenomenon that can happen is on the right side of the heart. So increased right ventricular pressure from increased transpulmonary pressure due to alveolar hyperinflation can lead to a decrease in preload from intravascular depletion. Patients also on prolonged beta agonist therapy, like I mentioned, can have PVC. So again, remember to look into your electrolytes and watch for any derangements and try to correct them to make sure the PVCs don't recur. So there's definitely a lot going on here. You know, I just initially thought a patient with an asthma exacerbation, the problem is a pulmonary issue, but there's a lot of cardiovascular interactions that we need to consider. You mentioned sinus tachycardia, and, and then even PVCs could be a, a common finding in these patients. I wanted to go ahead and focus in again on, on pulses paradoxes. Now, let me know if I got this right. So pulses paradoxes is when the systolic pressure drops more than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. And that's because of the increased negative pressure in the chest. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. These patients with asthma have so much built up negative intrathoracic pressure because of alveolar hyperinflation that it causes a significant change in the cardiovascular component as well. Well, I am absolutely worried about impending cardiovascular collapse in this patient. As we get our initial interventions rolling, what, what admission labs are we really looking to get? And are there any common lab abnormalities that we'll be able to at least correct, maybe help the PVCs just a little bit? Absolutely. So the first thing that I would focus on is looking at an electrolyte panel. As I mentioned, uh, common electrolyte derangements in these patients include hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. And this is basically because of beta agonist therapy that causes a shift of potassium into the intravascular space. Your electrolyte panel will also give you a serum glucose. These patients are stressed. They have received high dose of steroids, so typically they are hyperglycemic. And one more important thing to look at is also the serum bicarbonate or your HCO3 on the electrolyte panel. Mm-hmm. This number can be normal or it can be low, and this low level can actually be an indicator of respiratory or metabolic acidosis that's developing in these patients. Uh-huh. So low potassium, low magnesium, and watch out for a low bicarbonate because that might might be a worrisome marker of worsening disease. What about blood gases? I know we usually don't get these in asthmatic patients. That is true. We typically don't routinely get blood gases in severe asthma patients because an abnormal blood gas should not be your only indicator to escalate care or also initiate Mm -hmm. invasive mechanical ventilation. It's looking at the patient as a whole. Overall clinical assessment, like I mentioned before, including the mental status of the patient, should be really kept in mind as you're escalating therapies. 
Typically, if you do end up getting a blood gas, they'll show a well-compensated patient would show hypocarbia, so your arterial PCO2 is under 35, and this is because of hyperventilation seen in these patients. When you start seeing normal PaCO2 levels or even hypercarbia, so your PaCO2 is more than 45, this can be an initial predictor of worsening clinical status, and you may have to start being more aggressive of therapies in these patients. Oh, that's so interesting. So as they stop correcting their elevated CO2, that's when you know that things are getting bad. Yes, it's very important. And again, as I said, if you do end up getting an arterial or a venous gas, just try to look at these numbers in range and also your patient in perspective. Mm -hmm. And we should keep in mind that we expect the CO2 level to be low because the patient is to keep nick and breathing so hard. If we were to see a normal carbon dioxide level, that would be worrisome. Hey, I'm Ciara Minova, a graduate student of psychology and neuroscience of mental health at King's College London, and I'm so excited to share with you my new podcast, which is called Behind the Stigma. Every other week, I will be mainly talking to the podcast clinical psychologists, clinicians, researchers, educators in the field, you name it, basically people that I find so inspiring and that will help us understand the latest research, concepts, but also complexities and controversies surrounding mental health. These are going to be some great discussions and a peek into the fascinating world of psychology, neuroscience, and psychiatry. Yes, that can be something to, to kind of keep in the back of your mind as you're, and you're closely watching your patient with your therapies. All right. So we're grabbing electrolytes, looking for a correctable hypokalemia or hypomagnesemia. We are avoiding grabbing a gas for that false reassurance. If we do end up looking at an elevated lactate from admission labs, how would we go about interpreting it? That's a very good question. This commonly comes up in the in the ICU when an outside provider in the ED grabs a lactate and you end up with not knowing what to do with it. So elevated lactate is pretty common in severe asthma. And there are a couple of reasons for it. The most common reason is actually the therapies that we do. Mm. Albuterol or beta agonist therapy cause so much sympathetic stimulation and beta receptor stimulation that it can cause type B lactic acidosis. It's important to remember that type B lactic acidosis does not mean there's tissue hypoxia. It is basically increased production and slightly delayed clearance of lactate. And it's commonly seen in several medications, albuterol being one of the most common ones that we see. That's a good clinical pearl that beta agonists can actually increase your lactate. And we shouldn't just see the elevated lactate and think it's secondary to tissue hypoxia. Yes. And as you see on the sicker end of the spectrum for those patients, you can have an elevated lactate from severe hypercarbia or poor ventilation. And eventually this leads to severe metabolic acidosis. So your pH starts to drop eventually, mm-hmm. which causes a negative effect on your cardiovascular system. So the heart and the blood vessels like a normal pH to function. So once your pH starts to drop, it can cause an inhibition on your cardiac contractility, eventually leading to tissue hypoxia. So this leads to a type A lactic acidosis, which we see in other conditions like septic shock. So this is more towards the life-threatening end of hypoxia. So if you do end up getting a lactate, you know, again, looking at your patient, looking at your other indices of perfusion, 
looking at their mental status, their urine output, will give you an idea of the degree of tissue hypoxia. There's one way to actually differentiate between the two types of acidosis is actually to getting a lactate to pyruvic ratio. Some studies have shown that this ratio more than 10 can be indicative of multi-organ failure. But the problem is getting a pyruvate level is hard and it's typically never can be obtained right away. So you're stuck with kind of, again, assessing your patient clinically and making that judgment. Gotcha. And that's always the right decision, right? Go back and look at your patient. If we were to kind of summarize this section, though, beta agonists will reliably cause an elevated lactate level, but we can't turn our brain off. If the patient's getting worse, there could also be some tissue hypoxia contributing to that hyperlactemia. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very good point. Well, hopefully this patient doesn't have a type A lactic acidosis, but he does sound pretty sick. Let's move on to management. We know that this involves some combination of beta agonist steroids, magnesium, good supportive care, really the whole ball of wax. Do you want to talk about each of these components one at a time? Absolutely. Like you mentioned first, beta agonist is therapy that is nebulized. So albuterol is the most common therapy that we use. It causes bronchial smooth muscle relaxation by acting on beta 2 receptors. Typically, continuous nebulized doses start at 0.5 mg per kg per hour. So kids will max out around 20 milligrams per hour when used with a large volume nebulizer. Great. So you'll hit as many beta-2 receptors as possible with the continuous albuterol. What if we need additional bronchodilator therapy? What's our second line med for this? Yeah, so when you have a patient with diminished aeration, which our patient does have, there's always a concern about penetration of the albuterol that you're nebulizing into their airway. At that point, you have to think of a systemic drug. So terbutaline is another selective beta-2 agonist, and you can give that systemically. You can start actually initially giving it subcutaneously as well. So if you have a very sick patient with no IV access, you can give it subcutaneously as you start working on getting an IV. And you can start an infusion of it and titrate it uh, through time, and this can give you better systemic penetration of the medication. Typical rates for infusion are between 0.1 to 10 mics per kilo per minute. And as I said, there's a loading dose of about 10 mics per kilo that's given over 10 minutes. It can also be given IV. Oh, wow. Okay. So a loading dose of 10 mics per kilo over 10 minutes and then 0.1 to 10 mics per kilo per minute moving forward. And you can even start at sub-Q if you're having difficulty with access. That does sound like a life-saving treatment. And it makes sense. If the, the child's lungs are clamped down, you're probably not ventilating very well, so the albuterol might not be getting to where it needs to be there in the bronchioles. Are there any other beta agonists that you want to mention? How do you use epinephrine in a patient like this? So again, epinephrine can be life-saving in those kids who are coming in with impending failure as you're trying to get access. You can actually give IM epinephrine, just like how you would give for anaphylaxis. Typical dosing is the 1 to 1,000 concentration, and you can give it intramuscularly. And this will act in the same way, but something to remember is that because it's a alpha and beta agonist, you'll probably see a little more systemic effects, but it can be life-saving in those children who are trying to get an IV access and those who are in an extreme condition. Oh, wow. Absolutely. So we've got IM epinephrine, standard anaphylaxis dosing, continuous albuterol, and terbutaline to open up the lungs. Let's move on to systemic steroids. How do you see the role of systemic steroids in the asthma exacerbation? 
Yeah, so systemic steroids are very important in the management. They're kind of in the top line. Mm-hmm. We know glucocorticoids modulate airway inflammation. And because asthma is related to an inflammatory cascade, it's important to block that cascade to prevent further airway bronchoconstriction and mucus plugging and breaking that cycle. So typical steroids that we use are methylprednisolone, which is administered IV. Other steroids that you can be used are dexamethasone or even hydrocortisone in rare cases. As long as you are dosing appropriately, they will all kind of act the same way. And methylprednisolone, as I said, is given IV with an initial dose of 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram, so a max dose of 120 milligrams. And you can administer it every six hours in the initial stage. Okay. So steroids, a lot of different ways you can go methylprednisolone, hydrocortisone, and dexamethasone. I feel like I commonly see these children get dexamethasone in the emergency room and transition to uh, methylprednisolone in the ICU. Is that typically your workflow as well? Yeah, that is true. The ED setting dexamethasone is, is kind of quick and can provide a longer penetration because of its duration of action. There's been some studies that have shown that dexamethasone in the ED setting can be beneficial for children as well. Oh, yeah. We definitely, the hospitalists prefer dexamethasone. The pulmonologists prefer the delicious soluble prednisolone or regular prednisone. And then the PICU uses methylpred. Is that, does that seem like this? The, that's how most hospitals do it? That is true. As each of our subspecialists have our own little steroid flavor that, that we end up liking. Mm-hmm. But yes. Well, good. I'm glad that we're kind of getting to the controversy of asthma because I think the rest of our talk will definitely have more and more of that. So uh, next up is magnesium. What do we need to know about using mag for these patients? So magnesium kind of evolved into practice in the past uh, one or two decades. So magnesium sulfate is the composition that we use. And it acts by basically blocking calcium channels. And eventually this blocks smooth muscle contraction and also calcium uptake. So the result of this is generalized smooth muscle relaxation. There's also been some studies on using nebulized magnesium and aerosolized magnesium as well instead of the IV form in adults. But again, there's paucity of, you know, randomized controlled trials in children. And the real benefits really shown only in the ED setting. But this is one of the most commonly used adjunct therapies that you can use in your inpatient or in your ICU setting. Oh, wow. So my understanding is that magnesium was originally thought to reduce hospitalization for those moderate asthma exacerbations. So even if a patient's already admitted to the ICU with with asthma exacerbation, would you still reach for magnesium? I think most of us will try uh, a dose of magnesium. Again, just to keep in mind that there's really, you know, not many studies that have looked into it and looked at the benefits of this. So, you know, as you're doing these other therapies, you have to also think of what next in your plan of action. Yeah, we... We use it so often also to keep kids out of the PICU. I feel like it's it's ripe for a single set of retrospective study. But so how are you dose? I'm wondering how you're dosing your magnesium and also how you work in giving a bolus with the mag versus not and and the amount of magnesium they're receiving or the amount of initial resuscitation they've received. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Again, uh, another debatable topic in the PQ world. Mm-hmm. So typical dose of IV magnesium is 25 to 75 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 2,000 milligrams. 
This IV dose should be given over 20 minutes. As I previously mentioned, the action is generalized smooth muscle relaxation. So one of the side effects you can see is also on the vascular smooth muscles causing hypotension. You mentioned about giving a bolus. I think this is a little tricky and personal preference. Mm -hmm. As long as you're monitoring your patient's blood pressure frequently, so every three to five minutes as your magnesium's going in, you don't have to jump in and right away give them a fluid bolus, but having it ready if your blood pressure starts to drop and giving fluids right away can help. The The trend is now is to limit fluid resuscitation and fluid overload. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those important places where you're like, do I need to, can I just wait a little bit and actually watch my patient closely before I jump in and give them extra fluid? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you can always give more fluid, but you can't necessarily easily take it away. When would you expect to see the hypotension associated with magnesium? Is it right when you give it or sometime later? Typically, you'll see it as you're giving it and in the first hour of its administration. And as I said, once you're hitting your higher and max doses, you may actually see it sooner. But it's pretty well tolerated. And again, as long as your patient is getting monitored and his vitals are being checked frequently, it's safe to assume and start the medication and not give them fluids right away. Oh, absolutely. Be a good steward of your of your boluses there. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Grid. Please remember that everything discussed is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are also their own and do not reflect the official positions of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out pedscrit.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>